Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is a podcast for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Robin Morse from the University of Virginia. And I'm your co-host, Ahmed Al-Wazmi from Princeton University. Today, I'm here to talk to talk to Professor Behnaz Marzai, the author of A History of Slavery and Emancipation in Iran, 1800 to 1929, published by the University of Texas Press in 2017. Professor Marzai is an Associate Professor of Middle Eastern History at Brock University in Canada. She is a co-coordinator and member of the Preparatory Committee for the Slave Trade Route Project, UNESCO, and the founder of the website Brock UNESCO Project for the study of slave trade and slavery in the Mediterranean, Middle East, and Indian Ocean. By discussing this book, we will explore the history of slavery in the Middle East, particularly in Iran. This history extends to Africa in the West, India in the East, to Russia and Turkmenistan in the North, and the Arab states in the South. Welcome, Behnaz, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book. I was born in uh, Iran, and uh, I did my undergraduate and uh, my first master's uh, in Iran. And I focus on Islamic and Iranian history. In uh, 1997, I immigrated to Canada, and I began my graduate studies at York University in 1998. Uh, I joined a pro- uh, Professor Paul Lovejoy, my former uh, supervisor, who at the same time uh, just initiated the Nigerian Hinterland Project. I began to study um, African history at York University. And here, um, I became uh, interested um, in the studies of slavery. First, I did my first uh, master's degree, and then I expanded uh, my research. uh, And um, in addition to study slavery, I studied the African diaspora in Iran. This is how I basically learned about um, slavery because uh, back home in Iran, uh, we did not know anything about the history of slavery in Iran. Um, There were no studies in that field. Basically, that was the initial step, an important step for me uh, to learn to learn about this field. 
Yes, definitely. We, we do like a conversation about the history of slavery, I would say, uh, in the Middle East uh, speaking and, and, and the larger Indian Ocean world as well. Um, so how did that curiosity and, and initial interest lead you to writing this book? How did the idea develop? And if you can uh, share the research experience um, and, and, and the writing process. Well, it was um, a gradual process uh, started for me. Uh, first, uh, the first step was uh, writing my major research paper for my second master's uh, degree at York University under the supervision of Professor Paul Lovejoy. And, um, uh, well, I contacted Ivan, uh, my former uh, professors in Iran, and I asked them whether we had a slavery and whether there are uh, documents in archives in Iran where I can obtain and to write this uh, piece. And then they investigated and they got back to me and they said, yes, uh, there are materials in archives in Iran. So that was the initial step for me. Uh, to getting access to these materials, to these documents. Um, then um, I wrote this uh, piece, a major research paper, and then I expanded uh, that and as a thesis for my PhD um, dissertation. Um, one of the issues uh, that uh, I was facing was that there was no single model um, to write this book. There was uh, no research. There was no book to write uh, to write my uh, dissertation. And generally speaking, the study of slavery in the Middle East is relatively is a new field of study. Uh, across the Middle East, but in Iran, uh, there was nothing available. So I relied on uh, on the literature that existed. I relied on um, the literature uh, books written by uh, scholars, in particular scholars who work on different parts of the Middle East. For example, uh, Professor Ahotule Daniel, who, who writes about slavery in the Ottoman Empire or the Indian Ocean studies, like uh, works by Glenn Campbell and um, Professor Edward Alpers on East Africa. And also, I used as a model other slavery of um, study of slavery in other parts of the world, in Africa or in America, for example, by Paul Lovejoy. What uh, what I was trying to do uh, was to combine. Uh, and bring together my own background uh, from Iran, which was the study of uh, um, Islam and Iranian history, and combine it with what I was learning here in North America, which was the study of African history and also slavery. That was really helped me to uh, um, to. To, to write uh, to write on this uh, subject. So 
So in order to write a book, I employed um, an interdisciplinary approach. The book itself um, really looks at uh, various issues. It talks about the political uh, issues, social and cultural uh, issues uh, in Iran, and, and not only Iran, but also the Middle East, within the broader context of the Indian Ocean as well, and the changes that globally were happening in the world. Um, so the existing literature on uh, Islam, slavery, or Iran, um, Middle East, Atlantic slavery, these all help me uh, to shape my framework, uh, my theoretical framework to write this book. And also, I, uh, well, I use correspondence, uh, archival materials, slave narratives, memoirs, chronicles in different languages. In, in English and in Persian languages in particular, and also some in French and few in Arabic. But also, for me, um, field works were also important because for writing my PhD dissertation, I was writing about the history of slavery, <clears throat> but I also started uh, looking beyond the history of slavery. Uh, I learned about uh, African diaspora. Well, we did not know um, that there were the Blacks who were in uh, southern Iran. They were descendants of African slaves. And everyone was thinking that they were Iranians. And just because of the hot uh, weather uh, is kind of their skin, that was... That was the common belief that the skin were darker. Because, of course, Iran is, <laughs> there are different ethnic groups who live uh, in Iran and they have different um, physical features. So, for me, moving um, beyond uh, the study of the history of slavery, I, I, as a graduate student, I also was trying to find and collect uh, more uh, materials and study about uh, finding about the people, the Africans, descendants of Africans in Th Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I would like now to, to move to the book and its chapters. The book is divided in eight chapters that narrate the history of slavery in Iran and its wider context uh, uh, chronologically. Um, so in the introduction, um, you outlined how you came to be interested in this topic, and you've talked about that. But specifically, how does Iran provide a good lens into the discussion about slavery in the Middle East? So what, what advantage Iran provides for investigating this question? Um, well, um, first of all, the importance of writing uh, this book and working on slavery in Iran for me was there was no, no book in any languages on this important subject. What we see in Iran is, is very unique. Uh, Iran is very unique in a sense that um, 
not only uh, non-Iranians were enslaved, but also Iranians were also enslaved. Uh, Muslims were enslaved. Non-Muslims were also enslaved. They and enslaved people were imported into Iran, but also enslaved people, Iranians in particular, were enslaved and uh, were taken to other countries. So slavery in Iran uh, uh, was geographically, if you look at the geographically, the map uh, was happening in many different directions. It, it, geographically, it was so vast. It extended to Africa, to India, Central Asia, Russia in the north, the Ottoman Empire in the west, and also the Arab countries in, in the south. And also, of course, the British, who were always uh, present, uh, in particular in the Persian Gulf. When we study about slavery in Iran, we are looking at the history of Islam as well. And we, we see that uh, there are many different denominations, Islamic denominations were involved in the discussion about uh, slavery, uh, in particular uh, when they discuss about the abolition or emancipation period. Is, uh, so slavery in, in Iran was so unique and so complex that there were um, many different ethnic groups were enslaved. Um, another important uh, issue about slavery in Iran is that Iran was in many ways parallel to the Ottoman uh, Empire. Uh, I'm talking about in, in relation to uh, slavery in, in particular. These two countries uh, had so many uh, issues uh, in common. Their religion, they both were practicing Islam. Uh, of course, um, Iran was a Shia country and Ottomans were Sunni. In terms of the different ethnic groups who were imported into the country, for example, we're discussing about the Circassians and Georgians and also Africans were also, we can see that both Ottomans and also Iranians were bringing them to the country. And another uh, important aspect that uh, we can draw parallel between uh, slavery in Iran, the Ottoman Empire, or the Indian Ocean world is employment of slaves. So in many ways, they were sim similar. The process of the abolition uh, was so similar. And um, the intellectual reference which were happening during the abolition was also similar between what was happening in Iran and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, basically, um, this book, The Study of Slavery in Iran, I think, I believe that complemented the literature on slavery in the Middle East. And by reading this book, um, people would 
realize uh, what were similarities with, in terms of existed between, for example, slavery in Iran, or the Ottoman Empire, other countries in the Indian Ocean. What are the differences between the slavery practice of slavery or the institution of slavery in Iran and with the rest of the world, or for example, with the uh, Atlantic uh, Ocean? Thank you. And so keeping in mind those complexities that you described, over the course of the book, you demonstrate that there are significant developments that change the experience of slavery in Iran. What were, the, what were some of the early breaks from the past and how did Iran's interactions with the slave trading neighbors change? Well, um, in the 19th century, um, Iran was militarily and politically challenged by um, um, different uh, uh, countries, foreign countries, in particular by by Britain. Um, we see the involvement of the British uh, during the Herat War, for example. Um, they wanted to exclude the presence and the influence of Iran in Afghanistan. And there were three wars which happened uh, over the, uh, over Herat, which is called the uh, Herat War. And um, they were constantly, uh, because of the pressures that we see were happening um, as, that, as the result uh, of the foreign influence, there were treaties that were in, uh, imposed on Iran. Um, we see also Iran um, was challenged by the Ottoman Empire in the West. In the North, we have the Russians, uh, the Russians' expansionist policy. Um, they're moving towards the uh, northern part of uh, Iran. They conquered northern part of Iran, and the Russians were moving to Central Asia, taking over uh, Central Asia. And um, we see the Turkmenes also were invading Iran from north northeast. From the south, we have the Omanis, the Arab Omanis, who were attacking uh, Iranian southern. Uh, ports and islands, either attacking or imposing agreements. And basically, they were all um, trying to safeguard their own interests in the region, in particular in Iran. So as a result, conquest, military actions, and this expansionist policy, policies of foreign countries changed the slave trade demography and the pattern of slavery in Iran. Um, Through war, which were happening particularly in the 19th century, Iran lost territories to these countries. Uh, Frontier insecurity, uh, political instability, and uh, economic crisis made Iranians, Iranian people, vulnerable to uh, slavery. Um, for example, in the north, um, as I said uh, earlier, the Russians conquered um, the northern part in 1813, 
they imposed a treaty which was called Golestan Treaty. And then in 1828, uh, that, a Turkmenchai tr uh, treaty, which they separated a very important uh, areas, territories separated uh, from Iran. That the impact of this um, uh, action was that the Georgians and Circassians who were imported to Iran, that route was blocked. So um, uh, Georgians and Circassians could not be brought, imported to Iran. And not only that, uh, Russians uh, were seeking repatriation of enslaved Georgians and Circassians from Iran. And there is a famous um, event that we know, we, we've heard of the Gribite of uh, the ambassador of Russia in Iran. Uh, he was trying to uh, liberate and the NSA Georgians and Circassians who were in Iran. And after that, uh, well, he it was not successful. And he, uh, along with several of his companions, he, they were uh, killed in Iran. Um, this territorial occupations had a great impact on Iran. And as I said, um, they created, they led to insecurity, poverty, dis displacement of population. Um, the Qajar dynasty, this time period in the 19th century, it was very weak. It was so vulnerable. It was incompetent. Therefore, accepted any treaties or agreements that was imposed by the foreign um, countries. Another issue was the internally, the lack of strong central government caused these local governors, Iranians, of course, to act independently and impose heavy taxes on Iranians. These all uh, changes um, led to the increase in enslavement of Iranians, basically the Im Im imposing um, treaties which Russians uh, rat ratified with in Iran and from the north. Um, that road was blocked and uh, Russians expanded. Uh, they took over um, the territories in Central Asia and uh, so we see um, many Iranians from the south, Baluchi people from in the Baluchistan province were enslaved uh, or kidnapped even by other, other tribal groups, other um, communities of Baluchis. They were sold to the Arabs. They were taken to the Arab countries in Oman, for example, other, other parts of the uh, Arab world. And um, Iranians in North and Northeast were also enslaved by the Turkmen's. So there, there is a constant shift um, at the same time, shift of borders, shift of frontiers, and the, the pressure and the military force of foreigners how it led to not only shift of the borders and frontiers, but also the displacement of, of people. So the British, when they imposed 
or basically they negotiate. And initially, it was a very difficult process, but um, the abolitionist uh, agreement or suppression of the slave trade that also led to decrease um, of um, importation of and enslaved Africans into Iran. So basically the need for labor relied on Iranians to take an over from different directions, from the south and from the north out of the country. So to continue that a little bit, you, meant, you mentioned previously that Iran sits on the boundaries of the Middle East, Central Asia, South Asia, and the Indian Ocean. Can you tell us a little bit about the different experiences of Iranian slavery from the land and then expand how this differs or affects the African slave trade by sea in Iran's southern regions? Yes. Um, the difference between land and sea trade, well, the first difference was the geographic because um and also the, the the volume, the volume, the number of enslaved people who were imported and also were taken uh, from from Iran to other countries. Um, first, starting with the sea trade, the sea trade um, mostly. Uh, um, uh, we can see that the enslaved Africans uh, from the Suahili coast, the Indian Ocean, uh, were brought, imported to Oman. And that was a kind of a transit route. From Oman, they were distributed to Iran and the uh, Ottoman Empire. And um, the number was large, of course, because the the, the, the transportation was so easier uh, to carry them in boats. Um, most of uh, most of enslaved Africans were imported to Iran via sea sea route, but some of them were also imported by land. And as uh, in my book, I have mentioned, I discussed this in detail, um, uh, the trade in enslaved Iranians was mostly happening uh, uh, by, by land. Um, from the north and northeastern uh, north Iran and also from the south. Um, the reports that we have, the, the treatments of Iranians were so harsh by the Turkmen's. They were ch chained, uh, they were tortured, they were uh, mutilated, and they were killed. Um, they were resold, and they could not escape. Uh, liberation uh, did not exist. They could not liberate. Uh, these uh, Iranians who were taken to and sold in the markets uh, in Central Asia by the Turkmen's, they were in, in Bukhara, Khiva, uh, or Ishqaba. They were main um, slave markets existed and they were sold. 
and they were put into very difficult and harsh work. Um, the, the other side, we see that um, the trade in, in enslaved Africans importation from East Africa and the Indian Ocean all the way to the Persian Gulf, it was a very well organized trade network. And it was run by uh, many different uh, ethnic groups, but mainly the Arabs were uh, heavily involved in, in that trade. Um, after the suppression of the slave trade, uh, we see that the trade, very, very few uh, slave uh, people, Africans, were imported into Iran. Most of them were smuggled if there were coming, uh, they were smuggled. So there is another route that was open, and that was the land uh, route, and from Arabia uh, to Iran. And mostly was happening by the pilgrims, pilgrims who went to Arabia to Mecca for pilgrimage. They would buy, purchase one or two uh, Africans, and then uh, they uh, would bring uh, to Iran. Thank you for elaborating on that further. So when you approach Middle Eastern slavery, there is typically an Orientalist, or there has been previously, an Orientalist stereotype of slavery in the Middle East as being slavery light. You push back against this assumption in your book. Can you explain what slavery light entails and how you counter this terminology in terms of race, women, and the Atlantic paradigm? Sure. Uh, one interpretation of slavery in the Middle East emphasizes the good treatment or a mild uh, slavery in the Middle East and that the institution of slavery was not serious and that uh, slaves had a good time and enjoy, enjoyed uh, their life. Well, I argue that slavery was a very well-organized institution in the Middle East, generally speaking. Um, however, uh, there were regulations regarding enslavement, treatment, and liberation of slaves that those regulations originated from Islamic law and social norms in the society that made it very distinct from the Atlantic paradigm. Slaves were employed in military, domestic, and agricultural services. Women were used as concubines and servants. One main distinction with the Atlantic slavery was the existence of harem, the harem system. Um, in my opinion, based on what I study, there was no racial categorization in Persian sources. Well, I could not find any in Persian sources in terms of the racial cate categorization. And the terminologies that were employed to refer to enslaved people 
most of them refer to their origin, where these people were coming from. If, for example, someone was called Georgi, Zanzibari, Habashi, Sudani. Georgi means from Georgia, Zanzibari from Zanzibar, Sualikos, Habashi from Ethiopia, and Sudani means from Sudan. The Persian references to slaves in general was Ghulam for male slaves and Kanis for females. These terms mean servant, not even a slave. There is also references to the terms that uh, is Kaka, for example, that means brother, or Dada means sister. For females, although they were in harems, uh, some of them, or the harems belonged to the rich people, of course, or the Shah, the king, the names that we find in the resources for women, they were mostly uh, uh, flower names. And for male slaves, they were uh, precious metals. Um, when, when we studied um, Orientalist work, such as Mary Shale, for example, in the 19th century, we see that there is uh, references to slavery, which is uh, racially based. And categorize, they categorize slaves based on race and skin color. This way, they try to define the distribution and the employment of an enslaved people. I would argue that factors such as culture and social economic differences were so important and impacted the slave market. For example, we have famine in East Africa in the 19th century that led to the dropping of slave prices. And as a result, large number of numbers of Africans from the Swahili coast were brought to the Persian Gulf. So they were more available Racial categorization existed at the place of origin. Of course, we can find this in the documents and also along the transit route. But what I argue is that race was not a factor for enslavement in Iran. Um, when slaves were able to create kinship network. That was so important, and I could uh, examine this further uh, in my studies within the context of the African diaspora in Iran. And also their status was fluid. Basically, they could move and elevate their status, their position. However, uh, I argue again that slavery in Iran was based on power inequality and the mistreatment of slaves indeed existed. For this reason, 
is that we see some slaves run away and escaped. This, uh, these are recorded in the uh, manumission letters, for example, uh, of the, um, after the emancipation or during the liberation movement in Iran, which happens. Well, that's a great intro into our next questions. So in your chapters six and seven, you discuss the uh, both British side and the Iranian side of how they discuss slavery. So the Qajar dynasty who ruled parts of the territory in Iran during this time, as you mentioned, struggled to maintain strong borders on all fronts. In your book, you examine how British aid and diplomacy had an effect on the slave trade and its re- reception in Iran. So can you talk a little bit about how this occurred. But then on the other side, during colonial times and uh, anti-slavery regulations and developments are typically considered from a global of foreign influence. But in your book, you argue that Iranians were quite involved in these discussions. So how were Iranians conceptualizing slavery and how did Iranian discourses of slavery have an effect on the abolition of slavery in Iran? So both the British and the Iranian discussions happening at this time. Sure. Um, In relation to the slave uh, trade uh, suppression legislations and the agreement, and also the first Farman, the first decree of 1848 that was issued by the king of Iran, of course, the initial uh, discussion uh, started uh, about... Uh, a year, very seriously, uh, the, this, this discussion about a year before. That means in about uh, the manuscripts, which we find 1847. So there were several issues that helped separation agreements to happen between Iran and British. Of course, talking about the 1848 Farman or the decree issued um, by the king of Iran, one issue, important issue, was that the British shifted their argument and their demand from abolishing total slavery institution to only stopping the importation of enslaved Africans by sea. So that means they asked the Iranian government just a stop and do not bring, do not allow to bring any and enslaved Africans from sea, that means the Persian Gulf or the Indian Ocean. So basically, uh, slavery, the institution, uh, um, continued uh, and it was allowed, the practice uh, was allowed within the country. And also via land, uh, by land, they could bring um uh, enslaved people to the country. Um, one of the uh, another um, important factor here uh, was uh, helpful was the religious decrees uh, that were obtained from the ulema, the religious scholars, and some of them indeed condemned the slave trade. Um, that also helped. Uh, the discourse uh, and that things to happen, the abolition, the suppression of the slave trade, the agreement to happen between Iran and and Britain. 
The abolition agreements bet, uh, between the Ottoman Empire and also the British also was so helpful in a, a way that they set a model for the Iranian government to follow these examples of the um, an Islamic country that was the Ottoman Empire. It, they were so parallel in terms of the way they were negotiating between both the Ottoman Ottomans and also the Iranians and the agreements. Uh, if you read both sides, you could see a lot of similarities. And also another issue that we find so important uh, was in the same period in the 19th century, uh, there is a modernization and westernization reforms that were happening in Iran. And uh, there were intellectuals, for example, uh, who were uh, uh, advocating uh, for, for abolishing, abolishing um, uh, sl slavery. Um, we have intellectuals. These intellectuals, uh, most of them studied abroad. They uh, witnessed the changes that were happening in different countries, for example, in Russia or the Ottoman Empire or France. We have various religious movements uh, who were also advocating abolish, uh, abolition of slavery in the institution. Some, uh, some religious scholars and also people, Iranians, they opposed slavery and viewed slavery in, the, in particular, as we move towards the end of the 19th century, they viewed um, slavery against Islamic law um, because we see that so many of Iranians who were Muslims were enslaved and they viewed that as contradictory to Islamic uh, principles. In this time period, these people... Um, intellectuals, those reformists, they demanded the opening of a parliament. And also at the same time, they were writing on the newspapers, for example, about banning slavery. The constitutional revolution in 1906 was a major step toward banning slavery, where discussions about slavery was taking place. Some, uh, some, some other reforms also helped, such as abolishing the land grant and the semi-feudal system that existed in Iran um, that helped uh, because many of these enslaved people were working land they were, that by abolishing the, this semi-feudal system, many of them were kind of almost liberated, if not officially, but they were given more freedom. The discussion about equality, of course, there are so many uh, discussions and the, the issue of equality of all people was also going on in the, in the parliament. The establishment of a semi-capital uh, system 
in the early 20th century. In particular, um, is after the second decade of uh, 20th century, helped the transformations in slavery. The abolition of the institution of slavery itself officially, though, was ordered by Reza Shah uh, that was ratified in the parliament. But it happened within the context of preserving national honor. It happened within the context of anti-colonialism and autonomy of uh, Iranian discourse in 1929 to prevent further British involvement in Iranian internal efforts. One of them was the ship search because the British had obtained the right to search all the ships, even those belong to Iran, from uh, 1851 up to 1929. They were freely were searching Iranian ships. They were stopping them. They were confiscating people. They were imposing fines on people. So that was a major step that Reza Shah took to, to block any kind of intervention within the Iranian uh, internal efforts in order to abolish uh, slavery. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about uh, law and legislation in Iran that targeted the slave trade. Um, but how was that felt on the ground? How was emancipation achieved for those enslaved men and women? Uh, and what did they do with that freedom? If we can think about the afterlife of slavery and its uh, ramification across generations in modern-day Iran. Sure. Um, the Well, going back to our previous discussion about the constitutional revolution and the discourse about freeing slaves. Slaves learn about all these discourses. They were aware uh, about things that were changes that were happening in the society. Slaves uh, knew about suppression legislation. And they heard about the Brussels, for example, agreement. And in particular, what was so important was the revolution, constitutional revolution within the context of equality. So many of them ran away and they de demanded their freedom. But that was not an easy step uh, for them. Not for even for the uh, Iranian government and also for the British. Well, if we want to divide based on the gender, it was more difficult for female slaves because they, most of them were either married or had children from their masters, and they, they that would impact the social norms uh, of uh, in the country. And they did not want this to happen, the government of Iran, or sometimes even the British did not want. They wanted to avoid uh, the social disruption and maintain the moral, moral norms. 
Of course, masters of also a majority of them objected to this freedom. So for women, it was very difficult. Uh, they had no skills. Uh, they were not educated. Um, and uh, up to 1929, uh, when slaves, um, slave people, uh, would run away and they demanded, for example, they took refuge at the consulate, the Brit British consulate, and they demanded their freedom. And the freedom was selective. It had to go through uh, many kind of examinations. They had to study when these slaves uh, was imported, whether that was according to freedom uh, could be given uh, according to any kind of those agreements. It has to be carefully assessed. That was up to 1929. Well, of course, after 1929, all the slaves, the slave people were freed. There was no status as slavery or slaves. So when this happened in 1929, some stayed with their masters and they served them as servants. Um, a very few uh, slaves, to my knowledge, they went back to their countries or they went some, some who were Iranians and enslaved Iranians, some of them went back to their families. But it was very challenging uh, for enslaved people to gain an independent life with no skill and no education. Um, uh, some of the changes in the country helped that transformation from slavery to full uh, freedom happen. And that was the shift in the economy of Iran because Iran was increasingly was relying on oil. And that helped uh, the slave people, the freed people, to elevate their status and they, to get a job and basically to integrate and to assimilate within the, uh, the society. So this, uh, perhaps for this reason, one of the things that I want to highlight here is that when we study slavery in Iran, we have to uh, consider uh, the geographical areas um, to make that distinction uh, between the north and the south. Even within the South, different provinces, how enslaved people were treated. So the current, for example, uh, status of, uh, well, former slaves uh, relied heavily on their past, how these provinces were socially and economically were structured, whether allowed these people to integrate or um, assimilate or um, um, or marginalize or different different uh, status so and also I want to um, emphasize that that making that not only that geographical distinction helps us to understand the slavery in Iran but also whether these uh, people were lived in rural areas, or in urban in urban settings, that also had a great impact uh, once they freed, because the kind of jobs they would get, 
the opportunities that they were available for them really varied. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we will talk about also uh, how you, you've documented some of that in your later work. But I would like um, to explore some of the challenges that you faced in writing such a groundbreaking book uh, and tackling the subject of slavery. If you have any suggestions for young scholars aspiring to pursue the history of slavery in Iran and in the wider Indian Ocean world, um, how to embark on such uh, a difficult mission and how to conduct fieldwork? Well, um, if, if we want to divide this uh, study or research into two categories, well, uh, the first would be studying uh, history of slavery or studying the African diaspora in Iran, which is, is current. The difficulties that I faced uh, mainly uh, was obtaining uh, materials, in particular manuscripts. Well, uh, there are not many um, manuscripts re- comparing to other parts of the world on this issue, on this topic, generally speaking. There are some, and uh, the difficulty was accessing some of these archival materials that existed in Iran. Um, So the first part is accessing archival materials. And the lack, so basically there is a lack of uh, sources in some discussions about the slavery, which is very difficult to find. In relation to the African diaspora, well, of course, um, students or scholars must go do fieldwork or research and do interview. Um, honestly, I did not find difficulties in that sense. Um, people are so open-minded and sometimes they would joke even because, well, indirectly they would realize that what the discussions would lead and everyone assumes that, well, they, they are Iranians. Of course they are Iranians, but reminding them of their past, sometimes uh, would, um, they would laugh and they, it was very hard for them to believe. I, I did not face challenges in terms of interviewing with people and no difficulties, except that, well, they have to go spend time. And, and another difficult, one of the difficulties in terms of doing the fieldwork is that it's so vast. People, scholars who want to do research, for example, in Southern Iran, well, they have to decide which part of Iran they want to do research. Are they going to, because there are different provinces, for example, we have Khorasan, sorry, Khuzestan, um, Bushehr, um, Sistan and Baluchistan, or uh, Hormozgan, and also there are islands uh, like Qeshm, for example. 
they have to decide uh, which area they want to do their own study and the research because it's so vast. Uh, managing uh, interviews uh, in these uh, geographically vast areas would take so much time of them in order to to get a good sense and because these are these people have been integrated uh, within different um, local ethnic groups and even in terms of their dialect their language um, even in terms of the Islamic denomination they practice some of them are different now but there are some common uh, common uh, elements that you can find, for example, in southern Iran in terms of studying African diaspora, which are the uh, cultural practices that they imported from Africa. Thank you for those comments. And hopefully others listening can take some of your experiences and apply them to their own. Well, Behnaz, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I know you've conducted fieldwork uh, that resulted in producing DVD documentaries on the Afro-Iranian communities in southern Iran's Fars, Kerman, and Baluchistan provinces. Can you tell us about that and about your current or future projects? Um, yes. Um, the, the two documentaries that I made, um, the African Baluchi transcendence and also um, uh, the other one, which is the uh, Af- 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 Afro-Iranian lives. Uh, I started working on this documentaries um, when towards the end of my PhD uh, program. And it uh, many times I traveled to Iran. I went to the southern part of Iran and I tried to interview uh, local people, the descendants of Africans. And within the context of uh, history of slavery, the knowledge uh, and the connection that I could make uh, with the uh, historical material, the text, uh, I was able to... um, to develop this, to develop this research, African um, uh, diaspora in Iran. So I interviewed, and one of the things that was for me was fascinating uh, was the practice of this uh, Zohar, for example, which is named the spread possession, which is named differently in different parts of Iran. For example, Baluchistan, they call it Guad. Uh, so to, to find the elements that are common um, in Iran within, within that practices, cultural practices, to find similarities, to find differences, and also compare this with what was happening um, in Africa. Uh, I, I try to well focus mostly on uh, Iran and southern Iran. I travel across different uh, islands, um, different cities. I, I recorded, but in terms of 
going back to the earlier uh, question in terms of the challenges, um, if you want to, for example, one of the challenges in terms of filming people who do practice or to perform this uh, spread possession uh, rituals, uh, it's very difficult because they wouldn't allow usually uh, outsiders to film or uh, photograph their performances and their ritual is a kind of very secret and is a very private thing that was happening is happening. So it's, you, you need to uh, create that connection uh, with the people there. So they, based on trust, they would allow you to, to film. And what, interestingly, if they would realize that, okay, you are um, an educator, you are a teacher, a professor, you, the purpose of this filming or recording, doing all this research is for uh, to teach students. Uh, they were happily allowed me to, uh, to do uh, my, my work. And in terms of my future project, well, now currently I'm working on, on a memoir. I think this is the only memoir available. I'm not aware of any other. It's written by an, an, an enslaved African in Iran. That, that uh, memoir is written in Persian language, is written in the eight, uh, late uh, 19th century. And um, he describes about his life, was taken from Africa to Iran. And uh, I have been able to interview uh, some of his uh, children. And uh, I am uh, in the process of translating it into English and writing an introduction for this memoir and hopefully publish, publishing it making it available uh, for students and uh, researchers. That's great. I can't wait to read it. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Dr. Benaz Marzai, in which we explored a history of slavery and emancipation in Iran, 1800 to 1929, published by the University of Texas Press in 2017. This is your host, Robin Morse. And I'm Ahmed Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.